RadioInfluence.com. The future is now. No collective bargaining agreement in Major League Baseball. How does this impact the players who now have to stand by and wait for a report date? You've heard of load management and athlete management, maybe workload and tapering, but what really goes into balancing athlete and player performance? You might be surprised at how simple it can actually be. And in sport, of course, we're at the mercy of the competitive schedule, but could we be doing a better job? The NBA will tell us all we need to know. We're going to look at managing your athletes and players on this week's episode of Crush Performance. Roll that intro. performance with the crusher jeff crushell get in on the talent grid and text crush at 10 12 60 with your questions comments or smart ass remarks Welcome to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Kershell, and we're your weekly source for performance information. Hey, if you want to reach out to us, please do so. Check out our website, crushperformance.com. You can follow me on Twitter, at Jeff Crush, and on all other social media platforms, search out Crush Performance. If you have something you need help with, do not hesitate to reach out. If it has to do with your program, your athletes, your team, let us know. If we don't have the answers, we have an incredible network of people around the world who are so willing and ready to help out, you'd be surprised. So do reach out. Info at Crush Performance is that precious email. And man, we love hearing from you guys. So please do reach out if you need some help. Or if you have a topic you'd like us to investigate, let us know. We've got a lot of great messages here recently, and we're doing our very best to address them. Uh, Things like the myocarditis. We're really trying to get a top cardiologist on to talk about the myocarditis in relationship to COVID, the vaccine, but also just in sport in general. Uh, Way back a few years, we had a very, very interesting conversation and interview talking about heart screening for athletes. It's something that we don't typically do, but should we? It can impact athletes at every level of sport. And a lot of the times we don't even know there's an issue just waiting there to present itself. And you've seen it. We've seen athletes pass out with heart issues. And unfortunately, it can be very, very lethal as well. So the conversation a few years back was, should we start screening our athletes for heart conditions? Well, the advice there was, if you're concerned or if you have some form of congenital issue in your family lineage, talk to your family doctor. But that conversation turned out the question, should we be screening our athletes at the start of every season just as a precaution? Well, we're now doing baseline concussion testing at virtually every level of sport for virtually every sport. It's such a smart thing to do to get that baseline. Should we do some sort of baseline heart screening as well? It's an important conversation. And with the myocarditis, a message that was sent in a few weeks ago asking us to look into that and maybe get that cardiologist on. Well, you know, that sort of came off the Alfonso Davies situation, you know, him not being able to participate with team Canada and his pro team because of myocarditis. Well, there's a lot of reasons it happens. It's not necessarily COVID. It's not necessarily the vaccine, but when you understand it better, then, you know, we can move forward in the right direction. That's kind of what it's all about. These conversations. So if you do need help, or if you do have a question or a topic, Do not hesitate to reach out because, you know, listen, um, we kind of positioned the show to talk to all these incredible people and experts and address all these, uh, you know, awesome topics over the years to help everybody maybe think about things that they weren't thinking about. 
And so when you guys send in those messages to us asking us to investigate something, hey, man, you could take us right out of our lane sometimes and get us. Man, we do need to think about that. So it's a great it's a great team set up here. So please do not hesitate to get to us. And today's no exception. Listen, I want to talk a bit about the collective bargaining agreement in Major League Baseball. So we're on delay here once again. And there's a lot of issues here. We're not going to get into the politics of that because that's a conversation for the other sports guys and the other people who talk about it. Uh, It's a very interesting conversation when you look at the players' side and the ownership side and how this big, massive, multi-billion dollar organization can't seem to get their their priorities synergized to move forward in in a meaningful way. Hopefully that's what will happen coming out of this agreement. Hopefully it'll be set for many, many years to come. But the fact that it happened is kind of frustrating. What I'm more concerned about is here we are again, coming off this COVID age where baseball and sport in general went to a full stop globally. I mean, I still think back to that and I, I can't, I just can't even believe it happened. How does global sport stop? Well, I guess a global pandemic, a virus will do that for sure. So one of the issues that came out of that is athletes who were competing had to shut it down. Athletes who were getting ready to compete had to somehow stay ready. Well, we're kind of in that situation again. So today I want to talk about athlete readiness and we're going to use kind of the spinoff of the CBA and Major League Baseball. Now, if they do wind up canceling regular season games, spring training is going to be pushed back. Well, players over the course of this offseason, since December for sure, we're starting to ramp up their throwing programs. We're starting to transition from their strength and power training to get ready for the in-season program. Now that's put on hold. And it really started me thinking again about this whole concept of player management and athlete management. It's such an integral part of sport today. But when we see a massive halt like this, boy, oh boy, that's a big challenge. It's not easy to maintain a high level of readiness here. And so one of the consequences that might happen if they do wind up canceling, you know, a good number of regular season games, spring training is going to start. But how long are we going to have to get players ready for the season? And that is a really big, big question mark in any sport, leave alone baseball. Baseball might be a little special. I think when you look at all of the sports because of the throwing motion, the throwing motion in baseball, especially for the pitchers, but, but for every position, the throwing motion of repetitive, repetitively throwing a baseball is one of the most complex movements in all of sport, just top to bottom. It just takes so much to throw a ball accurately and repetitively and left unchecked. It becomes one of the most dangerous movements in all of sport. And it all comes around to that concept and idea of athlete and player management that you might hear about. You know, this load management, tapering, periodization, all these fancy words that are out there that are actually really great concepts, but can they be simplified? We're going to talk about that today. How simple can it actually be? When we break down what it takes to manage stress around an athlete, if you can understand that as an athlete, as a coach, you can really probably manage yourself or your team or your athletes better. So we're going to talk about that today. I think you might be surprised at how simple it can actually be. But we're all at the mercy 
of this competitive scheduling that we're in right from the grassroots, the little duffers. And there's a lot of, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. As we look at long-term athlete development as athletes enter sport, whatever sport it might be, and they work their way up and hopefully they're playing multiple sports, but we have issues with scheduling from our grassroots, certainly up to our pros. So here's a question for you today as we kick off the show and we're sort of focusing on this athlete management concept. Do you think the pro athletes you're watching on TV are at their, at their peak performance? Think about, and there's maybe a couple of ways to divide this up. You can think about the multi-competitive schedules out there. So the NBA, the NHL, uh, the NFL, Major League Baseball, for sure is in this question. The soccer schedule, you know. Then you have sort of those intermittent competitive schedules. If you look at the PGA Tour or the tennis tour, you might look at something like uh, the international Olympic kind of sports where they have World Cups and annual competitions that they can pick and choose to go to. It's a little different there. You can, you can, you can play uh, and perform and build up to those schedules. I believe in the PGA tennis, you know, where you can sort of, Hey man, the Australian open's coming up. So you work up to the Australian open and you sort of have your calendar laid out. I got five major events this year and a couple smaller events in golf. Very, very similar. So you have these intermittent competitive schedules, but then you have these multiple competitive schedules in pro sports. And that has somehow wickedly trickled its way down into the junior uh, sports and also our youth development sports. And it's a freaking disaster. It's an absolute disaster. If you look at the injury rates at every single level of sport, it's on the rise and it's continuing to rise despite how much we know now, despite the advancements in in sport medicine and what we know about recovery and regeneration injury rates continue to rise you know if we take baseball as an example this is going to be a really trying time for players as pitchers and catchers should have been at camp almost two weeks already the full team should be reporting right now end of february early march so we should be having full squad team workouts and the game should be starting, you know, in a week or so as they start working up and ramping up volumes towards spring training. So if we use baseball just as an example here, um, they've got a real, real balancing act in in front of them. And, and I don't envy any of the performance staff, the players on any organization right now, because they have to figure out a way to stay at a level of readiness that doesn't wear them down. But at a level of readiness where when they do get a reporting date, it's going to be overnight. Boom. Reporting date. Everybody be here Tuesday. Right. And boom, you got to be ready to go. Now, don't get me wrong. One of the beautiful things about professional baseball is the fact that that spring training is designed to help players transition from their off season to the season. We use those, you know, four or five weeks of spring training to slowly ramp guys up to get game ready for that competitive season of 162 games, right? 162 games. Without question, the most grueling competitive schedule in all of sport. Absolutely no doubt about it. You know, I had the um, pleasure of being the head strength coach for the Toronto Blue Jays through the late 90s into the mid-2000s. What a great experience that was. When I started with the Blue Jays, I started as their first full-time minor league strength coach. And in all of baseball at that point in time, I think there were only two teams along with the Blue Jays who actually had dedicated strength and performance coaches for the minor leagues. I was the first one in the Blue Jays. They didn't have a schedule. The athletic trainers did everything. What a massive job. Their job's already huge. Then they had to take care of 
player conditioning and, and everything else that goes along with that. So I'm telling you, what, I got in at just an incredible time. I got to build that minor league uh, performance strength and conditioning program, uh, which was such a treat. And then when I did get up to the big leagues as well, uh, a lot of the players that I worked with in the minor leagues came with me. So we had a, just a great, great team of players that I've worked with for years in the minor leagues who came up with me and a group of players who I hadn't worked with on a day-to-day basis before. So who slowly worked and earned trust, earned the trust of everybody. But one of those players that came up from the minor leagues to the big leagues was an incredible transition player, a transition NBA player. Mark Hendrickson was a player in the NBA and got some really good playing time, but he loved baseball as well. And he decided in sort of the middle of his career in the NBA that he wanted to pursue baseball. So he transitioned into baseball. And I believe there was a time there. We should get Mark on the show at some point, but there was a time there where he was doing both. He was doing a little bit of NBA, you know, short contract work. And then while he was still playing baseball and maybe I'll try to reach out to Mark and get him and just talk to him about what that transition was. Cause we've seen athletes to try to do it before. We've seen Tebow trying to go from the NFL to major league baseball. Can't do it. Couldn't do it. It's not easy. Uh, Michael Jordan couldn't do it. Hendrickson could do it. He was a, a good NBA player, but he was a really good major league pitcher when he finally honed his craft. Right. But to see that transition come over from, from sport to sport was really, really cool. And Mark Hendrickson, when he started his career in the minor leagues with all of the brutal long bus trips and you know, still a grueling schedule, 150, 132 games, somewhere in there, depending on what level you're at. It's a grueling, grueling schedule. When he got to the big leagues and uh, about halfway through his first season, when he joined us in the big leagues, you know, we sat down at lunch one day and he was just saying to me and a couple of the guys around the table that, you know, you know, I, the, he said the NBA schedule is pretty tough because it's a physically demanding sport. But, you know, a couple of games a week, practices a week, you know, it's much more tame schedule. He said, but this baseball schedule, this this is a different monster altogether. Just absolutely grueling, grueling. And he was a starting pitcher pitcher. So he only actually pitched every fifth day. Right. And it was still one of the most grueling things that he'd ever experienced as an athlete. How interesting is that? Right. I mean, think about that for a second. Well, it is grueling. And I really do feel for these athletes who are now on hold and what it's going to take to actually manage this and stay at a level of readiness. So when you do get the green light to report to spring training, you're ready to go or you're at the right place. You know, if we look back to the 2020 shortened season, the COVID shortened season, which was a, a true challenge coming off of coming off of that unbelievable stoppage of sport, right? It was a 60 game condensed schedule, which was pretty interesting for everybody, but they got some games in. Thank goodness. Well, 2021 was an interesting adventure for the entire sporting world. Certainly in baseball, the number of injuries when they compared it to the last full season, which was 2019 was up dramatically. And they're still trying to figure out why we're still trying to figure out why was it because of that shortened season? Um, did we not handle it enough? Was there not enough baseball? Was it too much baseball? Was that break just too much to overcome when they got back into the regular season? But in 2021, in the first two months, there was a 31% increase in injured list stints. So the number of players who were actually injured and lost time due to that injury was up 31% from 2019. Soft tissue injuries were up 117%. And when you broke that down into the types of injuries, groin injuries were up 700%. 
from 2019, the last full season, and even from the first two months of the 2020 shortened season, hamstrings were up 194%, obliques were up 83%, just a really, really complex, confusing time, and we're not sure why. And again, if you look at the long-term sort of development of injuries in all of sport, we're not doing a great job. And so what do you do? Well, you got to go back to our playbook. A problem accurately defined is already partially solved. Now, this is a very complex issue. There's so many layers, I believe, to this that we've got to sort of unpeel it. And so to do that, I think you have to break it down into its simplest form. What are the reasons these injury rates are increasing? Well, number one, I would say, you know, if you look at the issues in baseball right now, um, throwing and the issues of throwing, just a complex movement of throwing. That's number one. Number two, the length of the season. Listen, 162 games plus spring training plus the postseason. Some of these guys are playing 200 plus games in a very compact time frame. And then you have all of the factors that go along with that crazy competitive schedule that we're seeing virtually every major sport. And of those, you could probably think about the impact of travel, uh, the impact of travel on sleep and on food and biochemistry. It's a big issue. I mean, (laughs) think about it for a second. How many miles do you think a major league team travels in an average season? Take a wild guess right now. Just think about it and take a wild guess. I think you might be alarmed. And of course, when you talk about travel and crossing time zones, it's always more difficult. It's worse traveling east. It's easier to delay your internal clock than advance it. So coming back from east to west is always easier than going east. So those teams on the east coast have an advantage over the teams on the West Coast, who typically have to travel east to play teams. Well, let's look at it. The number of miles traveled. And so Seattle, of course, being probably maybe the westernmost team, northwestern, but westernmost team, maybe if you look at the actual map and miles. But regardless, where their proximity is in relationship to the other teams in the league and where they play, they've got it bad, man. 48,401 miles traveled in 2001. It's crazy. And you go to the White Sox, Chicago, they are in a really good spot because their competitive schedule really does decrease the amount of travel they require. It's all it's less than half of what the Mariners have to deal with. The White Sox in 2021 traveled 23,271 miles, less than half the Mariners. And of course, the White Sox are traveling more west, east to west than the Mariners who are traveling predominantly all east and we know that traveling east is more difficult so the mariners you know and all those west coast teams are are against it but when you talk about travel it disrupts your sleep and the sleep patterns which you guys know is one of our top priorities so that is something every one of these teams has to address but also the biochemistry of it all imagine going three hours to the east coast and how that disrupts your feeding times your sleep times and all the biochemistry and readiness well there's strategies now that we can implement but it's It's just really tough in that busy competitive schedule. You can do it in the NFL. You could probably do it quite well in the NBA. And we're going to look at the NBA later in today's show, because when we look at competitive schedules and the effects of competitive fatigue on team performance, the NBA tells us everything we need to know. Let's get to that a little bit later in the game. When it comes to managing your athletes on a day-to-day basis, you have to look at the big picture, but you also have to get right down to the minute details. 
but it's nothing to be worried about. You might be surprised at how simple it can actually be if you understand the process, and that's exactly what we're going to talk about next. We've got to cut up for a quick break, but when we come back, let's dive into athlete and player management right here on Crush Performance. Stick around, everybody. This episode of Crush Performance is brought to you by Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is an all-in-one superfood supplement with 75 whole food sourced ingredients designed to support your body's nutritional needs. Listen, I'm constantly researching nutrition options for my athletes and myself, and Athletic Greens is a direct hit on five critical areas that we value for health and performance. Energy, the immune system, gut health, mental clarity and alertness, and support of sleep and recovery. Athletic Greens is easy to use and cheaper than getting a bunch of pills and supplements all lined up by yourself. In fact, Athletic Greens was created when the founder experienced health issues and ended up on a complicated supplement routine to recover. It cost him nearly $100 per day. I use it daily myself. I recommend it to our athletes and I'd encourage you to give it a shot too. It's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition and we've got a great deal here to get you started. Go to athleticgreens.com backslash crush and receive a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Again, go to athleticgreens.com backslash crush, that's crush with a K, and get a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. If you have any performance questions, comments, or smart remarks, text Crusher at 10-12-60 and follow him on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Now, here he is, the Crusher. Welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. I am Jeff Crushell. Today, we are talking about athlete player management and the trials and tribulations, the challenges of the competitive season. If you have any questions, comments, smart remarks, do reach out. CrushPerformance.com is the website. Info at Crush Performance is our email. Follow me on Twitter at Jeff Crush. Well, it's a fascinating conversation. I mean, we just got done talking about the challenges of managing players and athletes in grueling competitive schedules. Of course, we're talking Major League Baseball here because spring training should be well underway. The CBA is, you know, iffy at best, but there's going to be a delay and possibly missed regular season games here. We don't know how many, but either way, players are now on standby just as they are sort of peaking for spring training. And again, don't get me wrong. Spring training is, you know, three to four weeks of games to get you gradually ready for the season. Cause that throwing motion is so challenging. But if we use major league baseball as sort of a reference point here, it is such a challenge. And talking about the number of miles teams travel, Seattle traveling double of what the Chicago white Sox would travel. The Mariners traveling the most, the white Sox traveling the least in an average major league season. But this issue is relevant for every single sport, you know, at every single level. And one of the things I think is really challenging, especially at the grassroots levels, is our somehow this desire to get out and play all these games as soon as possible. You know, I when I do present in person at conferences, I, I joke around a little bit and I talk about, boy, you know, if I was king of sport, here's one thing that I would do for sure uh, for youth sport and maybe up to age nine, 10 and 11, as high as that. I might cancel the first half of every competitive season and just play fun games, maybe mock games and just practice, develop skills, uh, help the players understand how their skill set is used inside the technical, tactical part of the game. But we are so game oriented that I think we're really, really handicapping the development of our youth athletes. And I got to wonder, 
if we did a better job at that age, would it raise the ceiling in terms of the abilities of our professional athletes? Those athletes that go through the system and catch fire, they love it. They want to chase it down. So, you know, they pursue a national team or a college scholarship or they sign a pro contract. Would the level of our elite athletes go up if we did a better job of developing our youth? I strongly think yes. And I strongly think it's without question. It's kind of what last year's theme of talent and talent ID was all about. You know, I don't think we, one, really understand talent. I don't really think we do a good job of developing it because we don't understand it. But at the end of the day, if we have a plan and we execute it well, then we can do the best we possibly can. One of the issues, of course, is that competitive schedule. And in pro sports, in youth sports even, that competitive schedule is not conducive to high performance. We're not seeing the best performance coming out of our athletes because those schedules aren't conducive for it. And Major League Baseball, as we just talked about, is probably without question the most grueling. Now, baseball is not the most physically demanding sport, but that schedule, there's nothing like it. It's terrible. And so we talked about these multi-competition sports, Major League Baseball, NHL hockey, NBA, MLS soccer, uh, NFL football. You know, we have these scheduled games every week, every week for months and months and months. And then you have these intermittent competitive schedules like tennis or golf or maybe the international sports like bobsleigh or alpine skiing. You know, they have these international events that they plan around and they build up to and they break them down. They build up and peak for each performance. It is impossible to peak in a major league schedule. It is impossible to truly peak in an NBA schedule. And the NBA is going to tell us all we need to know. We're going to get to that in the next segment. But I think when it comes down to it, if you really understand what's going on in terms of your athletes and their ability to recover, you can really manage them better, right? It goes back to that whole idea that we have, and we preached forever from the beginning of the crush performance programs is if you really want to solve a problem, the first step has to be to solve the problem really define it clearly so you know what to do. And when it comes to athlete player development, you hear all these fancy words like load management and work work management on these players. You talk about tapering and workloads and words like periodization and they're all great concepts. They're absolutely fundamentally just fantastic when it comes to putting things into an organized approach. But if you don't understand the key components of it, then you're in an uphill battle no matter what. So like when we talk about the injury rates in baseball, we talked about, you know, the increase in soft tissue injuries in 2021 last year compared to the last full season, which was 2019, a dramatic increase in injuries and particular soft tissue injuries and the number of days spent on the injured list. I mean, soft tissue injuries were up in the first couple of months of 2021 compared to 2019, 117%. And in order to really fix that, you got to understand it. Well, you know, if you look at baseball in general, and this data is available for every single sport. So we could talk hockey here. We could talk basketball. We could talk soccer. We could talk any major sport. We have this, all this data. But if you look month by month, the injury trends in baseball, April and May historically have the highest injury rates. Isn't that interesting? So you're coming off of a, off of a season, an off season of rest, and then building up to spring training. And then you have four to five weeks of spring training. And then the season starts in April and you're seeing the highest number of injuries early in the season. Isn't that kind of counterintuitive? Wouldn't you think that the highest number of injuries would be towards 
the end of the season? Well, there might be a lot of reasons for that. And again, if you look at spring training, just spring training by itself, day games in a sport that is predominantly night games. So maybe that transition going from spring training to the regular season in April, maybe that is just too drastic. Maybe that's why we see so many injuries in April. Also, of course, spring training, you're basically playing at home every day. You might have a bus trip, but if you've ever had a chance to go to spring training, and even if you're not a baseball fan, I really encourage you try to take it in. It is fantastic. Oh, you can get closer to the players, but smaller ballparks. But from the team standpoint, you know, the worst bus trip might be, you know, cross the Florida panhandle, maybe two or three hours. That's it. But when April hits, all hell breaks loose. You're all of a sudden on a plane and you start your 42,000 mile adventure through the competitive season when it comes to travel and it wreaks havoc. So could we be doing a better job of scheduling? I think so. Could we be doing just a better job of managing spring training? Maybe the last two weeks of spring training should all be night games so the players can start getting accustomed to the daily role of waking up maybe a little bit later, going to bed a little bit later, but playing late at night and getting their entire chemistry and their sleep habits lined up for the demands of that competitive schedule, I think it would make a huge difference. I don't know why it hasn't happened. And if you talk to most players, spring training's way too long. Like we just, I don't think we need that much time, especially with the level of fitness the players have right now. These guys are stud status. Like, listen to me. Like these guys are really, really prepared. It's not like the old days where guys came to spring training to be ready, to get ready for the season. Guys are coming to spring training to get ready to crush the season. So the landscape has changed quite a bit. So it's a big conversation. But when it comes to the ultimate breakdown of player and athlete management, it might not be as complicated as you think. You know, if you really look at the factors that are involved here, there's some some very simple things you need to think about, right? Um, When it comes to athletes in general, there's three major factors that need to be addressed when we're managing our athletes. And that is workload. Workload the competitive schedule and how much quality rest they have. So if you listen to the show, this is where we've come up with our top four, five now priorities for athlete performance, athlete and player performance. Number one is rest, recovery, and sleep. Number one, and your competitive schedule All the work that you do, training or competitively, has to revolve around quality rest and sleep. And if that's not happening, you're going to be more susceptible to injuries and you cannot play at your best. It's not possible. So that's why we've sort of developed this hierarchy in our programs. Other programs do other things, but for our programs, it's written in stone. Rest, recovery, sleep, nutrition, hydration, posture, range of motion, movement, and then, of course, the brain game. The brain game was one of our major themes here on the show in 2021 last season. And we really did outline what it's all about. It is a massive, massive topic. And it's not simple. It's not sports psychology. The mental game is one small piece of the brain game. We've got perception, personality, attitude, how you learn, memory. This brain, it's the most incredible organ in our known universe, without question. But where does it slot into our top priorities? I'm not sure yet. We haven't established that. We know now 
that our top four priorities have become our top five priorities. And I'm not sure if the brain should be number one. Do we need to address brain health and brain function before we even talk about sleep, rest and recovery? Well, we know sleep, rest and recovery are critical. So there's this conversation we're going to be having as this year rolls on. But I do believe there are aspects of the brain game that need to be addressed right off the bat. Like we talked about in the last um, um, segment about heart screening and concussion screening. We do all of that at the start of every competitive season. So we have our baselines, right? It's so smart. I think there are parts of the brain game that could easily and should be addressed before we even start training our athletes. It's a big conversation for another day, but I really do believe that. So part of the brain game is certainly maybe even before sleep, rest, and recovery. Isn't that fascinating? Well, when we talk about athlete management in our programs, that's where we start. And then when we start integrating that into the competitive schedule and preparing for sport, it comes down to three major factors, okay? volume, intensity, and frequency. And whether you're a coach, an athlete, or a parent out there, you need to understand those three things and how they relate to your competitive schedule, your annual plan. When we get an athlete or a team that comes into the crush performance world, we break down a lot of things. But one of the first things we address when we start mapping out our attack plan, our strategy, is our annual schedule, the annual plan, postseason, offseason, preseason in season. And then there's peaks and valleys within each of those timeframes. And all of those peaks and valleys revolve around the volume of work that we're doing, the intensity of the work we're doing, and then the frequency of the work we're doing. Then we start getting into skill development, the technical, tactical side, positional fundamentals. There's another factor that comes into play, and it's very, very important. And that is movement efficiencies. Are you an efficient mover? And if you're not, what can we do to correct you to one, reduce risk of injury, but number two, most importantly, maybe increase your performance outcomes. Because if you're not an accomplished mover, it doesn't mean you can't play at the highest level, but it probably means you're not playing at your best. And it also could probably mean you're more susceptible to injury. Here's a good example for you out of the baseball world, because we're kind of talking about baseball right now, right? So if you looked at a baseball player, Would you say that cardiovascular conditioning is important? Would you think that cardiovascular fitness is a major player in the performance outcomes in baseball? Just think about that for a second. And here's what I'll tell you. Anybody that says cardiovascular fitness isn't important in baseball does not know what they're talking about. It's one of the fundamental building blocks and foundations for recovery and performance in the game of baseball. Recovery between pitches, recovery between innings, recovery between games, recovery between training sessions. It is critical. Now, do our baseball players need to be marathon runners? Absolutely not. But getting to our point about athlete management, here's something that I learned in my time in professional baseball. Some of the guys run really well. They're great, fantastic runners. Some of these guys could be marathon runners. They're beautiful to watch. When they run, like, you know, if you've ever had a chance to watch a professional athlete perform live, you know what I'm talking about. It's just a different level. It almost takes you back. I remember my first spring training down in Dunedin at the Blue Jays complex there and watching the guys just play catch. It actually stopped me in my tracks. I had to take a step back and go, wow, 
that is just awesome to watch. And, you know, I was a fairly good baseball player, but, you know, I played good high school baseball. I played pretty good baseball, but I've never had a chance prior to that to see a professional baseball player play catch. The movement patterns were just, they were just different. It's like watching Usain Bolt and the Olympic sprinters run or the cross country skiers at the Olympic ski or the NHL hockey players skate. Oh my gosh. I had a chance to work with and train some NHL guys during the 2004-2005 lockout. The players were on standby again, waiting for camps to open because the season was delayed. Everybody thought we were going to start on time. So we were building this whole offseason. Our guys, oh, they were so well trained. They were, we had, we had guys who had 10 years in the NHL who were in the best shape of their entire lives. I was so excited for these guys. And because of the, the lockout and the delayed start to the season, um, everybody just sort of got together in my hometown of Edmonton is a real hockey hotspot. A lot of NHL guys here. So guys from all over the world started coming to Edmonton and they started playing these, these pickup games kind of. And I managed to get on the ice with these guys. Now, listen, I played some hockey as a Canadian kid. I played some hockey and I was okay, right? I could skate pretty good. I could shoot pretty good stick handling while well, I just was a little short, but, but had a chance to get out with these guys on the ice and they're playing, man. We're getting closer to, you know, the season starting up and they're trying to get game ready. And I was out on the ice with these guys. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, humble piece of pie, just a humble, humble piece of pie. I'm telling you, I was like a pylon out there. These guys are so unbelievable. They're just so quick. They're passing accuracy, the speed of the game. And this is preseason pickup hockey, but it was just unbelievable. By the time the play's going one way and then it transitions back. By the time I got turned around to go back, they were already coming back towards me. That's how fast it was. And I'm not joking. I was an okay, pretty good skater and an okay hockey player, junior B kind of a little bit. And, but I love the game, but these guys are just at a different level, right? It's just unbelievable to see a professional athlete move and perform. But when we have a movement pattern issue, it can not only increase the risk of injury for the athlete, it can also really lower their ceiling of potential. Not that they can't play at the highest level. It's just maybe they're not playing at their very best. So this is the whole premise of biomechanics and this 3D analysis that we see. But there's a lot you can do. That is pretty fine. And it doesn't tell you anything. And a lot of that stuff can be very, very misleading as well. You have to be looking for the right thing. So if we take pitching, for example, you know, you have some of those pitchers out there who just are so smooth when they deliver the ball. There's very little unwanted herky-jerky movements. They're probably very efficient movers, very low risk of injury. Then you have other guys who are almost like really violent movers. They'll throw the ball hard and with accuracy, but their hat will fly off or their head will jerk sideways. And you wonder how they stay together. Well, typically they don't stay together. It's one of the sure signs a guy will break down. So we try to work for ways to help those guys become more efficient movers. So you have volume, intensity, frequency, and then efficiency of movement. And you have to manage all of those things together if you're truly going to help your athletes perform. Now, the real key comes in when the transition from the off-season to the in-season happens. This is a critical period of time. And one of the reasons, again, I think we see higher injury rates in April and May in Major League Baseball, we see similar trends in virtually every sport because that transition has to be done right. Okay, you got to make sure the body is ready for that competitive schedule, but also now the workloads that the coaches are going to demand. When we start gearing up towards the season and get into the season, the athlete development side has to take a back seat. 
So we really ease off. It doesn't mean we don't lift hard. It doesn't mean we don't run hard. It doesn't mean we don't train hard. It just means we do less, less volume. The intensity has to be there. Frequency might be less as well because we know now the priority is in sport performance. And when it comes to that volume, getting back to the running in baseball, some of our guys ran really well. Some of them did not run well. So the guys that didn't run well, I managed very, very carefully. We use a lot of rower, a lot of elliptical machine. We use a lot of bike. We still have to run because in the game, you have to move your center of mass with the ground between your feet and the ground. But we had to manage those guys because they weren't great runners. The guys that were good runners and they enjoyed it, well, we let them go a little bit. They ran more than the other guys. So that's part of athlete management, okay? And when we look at having that happen in season, well, now we've got the competitive schedule to deal with. And the NBA, I believe, can tell us a lot about that. Let's have a look at that right after this. we got to cut out for a quick break. But when we come back, we're going to look at what the NBA can tell us about the incredible demands of the competitive season and what we might need to take away if we're truly going to perform at our best. Stick around, everybody. This is pretty interesting. Get the Crush blog, podcasts, Twitter, and Facebook links at crushperformance.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Crush Performance, everybody. So glad you could join us today. Questions? Comments, smart remarks, we love them all. Reach out, crushperformance.com is the website. Info at crushperformance is the email. Today, we've been talking about athlete and player development, and it's been an interesting conversation, no question about it. But when you break it down, it's really not as complicated as you might think. But when it comes to managing it, especially when you get into a set competitive season and a competitive season that doesn't make a lot of sense, in the professional sports, we know it's just, it's a business and it's just overdone. Very few professional athletes are performing at the peak of their abilities. We're also now, unfortunately, seeing this trickle down into amateur and developmental sport. We overcompete, we undertrain, and we certainly under-recover. Here's a principle that I just like to share, and I talk about it all the time, and you've heard it on the show before if you listen. The human body can perform incredible amounts of work. And for the most part, it's not that we overwork so much. It's that we undertrain, and that's where those factors we talked about in the last segment are really, really important. You need to understand volume, intensity, and frequency. Different volumes require different recovery times. Working at different intensities require different recovery times. And then the frequency of those should all revolve around everything that's going on in the life of the athlete, especially when it comes to those workloads the volume and intensity of workloads. And you need to understand that higher intensity work requires more recovery. One of the reasons we're seeing so many injuries in the power sports, especially in baseball, throwing, hitting, their power movements. And we pack in the games with such a high frequency that there's very, very little chance of our body's soft tissue recovering, leave alone the nervous system. The nervous system takes longer to recover than the connective and soft tissues of our body. And so we really have to manage our athletes using those tools, but we also have to understand that the athlete's level of readiness, level of preparation will also determine how they respond to the volume and intensity. For example, if you have young children, let's say you're coaching a youth team and you have kids on your basketball team that also run cross country and you have other kids that just play basketball, chances are, and I would 
be very comfortable saying this. The kids that are also running cross country are probably in better shape. So they're going to respond better to the basketball season. They're going to recover better. They're going to be able to do more work because they recover quicker. Certainly see it in baseball. You certainly see it in hockey. That's why we do VO2 max and Wingate tests on all of our NHL hockey players and all of our young prospects. That cardiovascular performance and that level of fitness is critical in determining how they're going to respond and recover from the workloads that are required to become a professional athlete. And then you have the efficiencies of movement that need to be addressed. This is where things get really, really fun. But when we look at the NBA, there is a story to be told and a lot to be learned. And it all began when the NBA franchises started diving into the concept of sleep, rest, and recovery. And it started with Stanford sleep scientist Sherry Ma, who was at that point consulting with some of the NBA franchises. And they're looking at opportunities to help their players perform better on a daily basis. Well, some very interesting things took fold. Sherry Ma, of course, a crush favorite. She's been on our show a number of times talking about this very subject, by the way. So you can go back into the archives and get our incredible conversations with her. But there's a lot to be learned here. They set out to decide and identify which games would be lost because of the NBA schedule. And these games were called scheduled losses, if you could believe it. Under the onus that fatigue swings outcomes. Listen, the players know it, the coaches know it, the odds makers know it, and the betters know it. And it was so accurate and powerful that we started seeing something called schedule alerts. And this is where they identified games in which travel and fatigue would weigh more on one team than the other, giving them a huge advantage and throwing the odds off. And it all started with Sherry Ma. She developed a formula that looked at things like travel, game frequency, recovery time, game location, and other factors to determine when a team would be at a distinct disadvantage. And so they set out to pick the winners solely based on fatigue-related factors. It had nothing to do with skill or payroll or talent or how good the ranking was of one team compared to the other. It was solely based on... On fatigue-related factors, how successful were they? Well, in games that had a high MA score, where that balance was off and one team had a huge disadvantage, they had a 75% accuracy in picking the winner. 75%. And then things got even more interesting as they started ranking these games in relationship to the number of fatigue factors that would be impacting a team. The fewer fatigue factors in play, the lower the score. But when the stars aligned and all the fatigue factors came into play, you got a red alert game where one team was at such a disadvantage, it was almost a sure-fired bet they would lose. In the first trial season of the project, they accurately predicted 76.5% of all the red alert games, forcing the NBA to change their schedule. And the NBA continues to make adjustments to level the playing field reducing the amount of travel, reducing back-to-back games, looking at those fatigue factors so they have a better product on the field. Very interesting. In the COVID bubble, what was one of the major things that came out of that? Well, from the players, the coaches, the GMs, and the fans, a higher level of performance. The players reporting that not only were they physically feeling better, but mentally, overall, they were in a better place. GMs and scouts reporting that they'd never seen this level of play before. Why do you think? There was no travel. Everybody was right there. They didn't have to travel. The recovery was a lot better. So could we be doing better? You better believe it. And while the professional sports are seemingly locked into their competitive schedules, we could be making massive adjustments in the youth and developmental levels to help our 
athletes develop, play, and reduce the risk of injuries at a whole other level. Anyway, interesting conversation, everybody. We could talk about this all day, but unfortunately, we are out of time. So I want to thank you guys for tuning in today. Take some time and look at your volume, intensity, and frequency. Look at your competitive schedule. Look at everything else that's going on in your lives and really pay attention to your level of recovery. And if you need more rest, cut down on the work, cut down on the volume, cut down on the intensity, cut down on the frequency, bounce back, and keep in mind that the game of athlete and player management never stops. It's part of the fun. So get out there, have a great week, have some fun, stay safe, get a little better. We'll talk to you next time right here on Crush Performance. Goodbye now. Don't forget to ride. This is a Dark to Light with Frank and Beans Quick Fix on Radio Influence. They're also demanding cyber attacks and and no-fly zones and, and, and everything, not knowing that they're essentially begging for their own death. Yeah. Because what this will trigger or could trigger is um is it's just really incredible and nobody really knows and why is it that everybody thinks that the media that obviously hates us so much uh they have locked arms and they're all they're all in agreement on this one thing with very slight differences if you tune into the Hannity shows they are taking the slant of Joe Biden's weakness created this and of course the weakness that is exuded from the Biden team and that is tied into what the, the NATO crowd, the UN crowd is all about, WEF crowd. There is weakness there. Now, of course, it has contributed to Vladimir Putin saying, I guess this is the best time than ever to, to go ahead with this and, and try to make whatever the hell they want to make right, right. I, whatever their, their motivation is, you have to do some studying on that. And then there's the other side where if you, you tune into uh, Joe Scarborough or if you tune into the Twitter feed of that, that crazy ass Keith Olbermann, it's all about this is Trump's fault. Isn't it amazing how Russia didn't go into Ukraine when Trump was around? And that could only be because Trump was carrying their water. It's like so everybody agrees that this is bad and we're all we're all rooting for the Ukrainians. That That has to be agreed upon. But of course, we are given very superficial things to disagree on. All right. And it's all political two party duopoly nonsense. Yeah. So that in itself should make anybody with half a brain to say, I'm out of this. There's just no way for anybody to know what the hell is really happening here. Like, is Putin like going along with the global reset? And that's why he's doing this now, because, you know, whatever. Or is he trying to stop it? And we don't even realize it or like what the hell is even happening? What's happening? It bothers me that I have no good idea or handle on what the hell is going on. Dark to Light with Frank and Beans can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Podcasts and RadioInfluence.com.